Well, the Doctor Who podcast is more than a machine, Tegan. It's like a person in needs coaxing, persuading, encouraging. Well, welcome, dear listeners, to the continuation of our episode 50 celebration week, the week where we give you, our fantastic, wonderful, valued, treasured listeners, um, a whole week of fantastic output from the uh, Doctor Who podcast towers. Now, so far, you've enjoyed a quiz. You've enjoyed the War Games episode 10 commentary. So if you haven't listened to them and you've just downloaded this file, please go and check it out. In this particular file you have in your... Uh, download queue or iPods or computers. We're going to be giving you today a commentary track for the Doctor episode Midnight, which featured the uh, 10th Doctor, David Tennant. So, And it's my great pleasure to have with me here in the uh, DWP camper van, James and Tom. Hello, Trev. Hello, Tom. Hello, hello. It's good to be here. Indeed. And looking forward to this particular episode, I have to say, the last time I saw this was at Gallifrey, where Alice Troughton was providing a commentary on the episode. Okay, okay. Wow. Well, I hope we can compete with such um, esteemed competition, James. Not a I chance. really do. Not a chance. Oh, <laughs> can, I, can I just ask something from a fan's point of view? I, I kind of know the answer to this, but James, can you just clear it up? Is Alice Troughton any relation? No. Absolutely none whatsoever. However, David Troughton, who does feature in this episode also, is. Okay, good. I'm glad we got that out of the way. (laughs) Okay, should we get started, guys? Yeah. I think we should now. So you can join along with us at home and you want to watch the episode while we uh, talk about it in the audio format. We'll give you a countdown from three through to one. And when we say play, press play on your... uh, playback device of choice whether it's your uh, computer or your dvd copy of midnight so you can join along in the fun and see what we're watching here while we record it so after three one two three play uh-huh. that's a lovely set isn't it now it is well i suppose you can call it a set but really i, I suppose it's showing the uh, beauty of the uh, computer-generated imagery that's become pretty much uh, a, a default standard for Doctor Who in the modern era. Mm. I just keep some, on thinking of be- Bespin when I see that <laughs> opening shot to midnight. <laughs> <laughs> ah, Donna. Okay, and so look, here, we, here we've got David Tennant doing one of his best Tom Baker impressions. Effusive. Really wanted to get into it. Eyes bulging and trying to convince someone to come along for the ride and play the universe like a pinball machine. Wonderful stuff. Donna, isn't it's, it's, oh, Donna. it's funny, isn't it? Because I think you can tell when Russell T. Davis writes scripts. I, I think you can anyway. I think they're quite distinctive. And the most obvious indicator, I think, of an RTD script is the way the Doctor speaks. And I think, Tom, that's very much in line with what you were saying. He's very Tom Baker-ish. He's very bouncy. Um, he'll pick up on all manner of small little things that you wouldn't necessarily expect him to in other episodes. Mm. And I think sometimes it's a very light way, or it's a very light portrayal of the Doctor. 
And then, of course, the other hallmark of an RTD script is when he comes in and completely blows you out the water with the opposing portrayal, the dark, the serious, mm. um, the very in-charge Doctor. And this episode summarises that beautifully because it doesn't mm. actually work for the Doctor yeah. <laughs> in this story. And, of course, that's well, the major I mean, draw, really. We we really get both in this story, don't we? We, we get the light, frothy Doctor at the beginning, but then by the end, we get the Doctor that's the dark. But we also, I, I think one of the things that's a pivotal about this story is we get the Doctor that's not in control of the situation. Now, it, it's a really fascinating, I suppose, part of the era for Doctor Who because I think this is what, the second year where we're getting our light episodes from memory um, where um, we'll have a couple of episodes during the season which give the opportunity for... Um, some of the main characters have to have a bit of a break, I suppose. Yeah. Mm. And in this particular story, it's very much a Doctor-heavy episode. And the companion, Donna, only appears at the beginning and the end. Mm-hmm. And that will then get flipped for the next story in this season, Turn Left, where the Doctor barely appears and Donna uh, take, takes the brunt of the story. Oh, look at that. Doesn't he, you, do you know what? I know I'm trying hard to see it, but can you see how much like his daddy looks? Yes. Oh, it's astonishing, <laughs> mm. quite delightful. And, and not so much how he looks, it's how he sounds. Mm. And he he's actually yeah. done that quite deliberately on a BBC release of um, Talking Book of the... Right. Oh, what's the very first Yeti? I can't remember. The Abominable Snowman. Yeah, yeah. Um, yes, and he's done it as well with um, with one of the big Finnish companion chronicles as well. And his his voice is so so similar to to no. Patrick's. Yeah, absolutely. Even if you didn't know that David Troughton was related to Patrick Troughton, you'd look at this man and go, "My goodness, this man is channeling the Second Doctor." Mm. He, mm. I mean, he he's not doing it consciously in in Midnight because he's trying to be his own character, but you just see certain bits during this entire, you know, 45, 50 minutes and go, my goodness, that is so much like Patrick Troughton. It's uncanny. You know, just, just a general note about this, this entire episode. One of the great things about previous Doctor Who, early black and white Doctor Who, is the very staged one-act play nature of it. You know, very static cameras, very enclosed space. And that's exactly what you've got here with this particular story. It's a very small set. It's a very a, a very, mm. a, a very thick cast, if you like. And as much as there's a lot of acting going on, we're not relying on uh, large vistas, we're not relying on lots of special effects, we're relying on the actors in a small space doing repertory theatre, which, lest we forget, is exactly what David Tennant is very, very good at. So it's interesting seeing a small all space drama being played out, and you know, and here we have the enclosure. We have the beginning of the claustrophobia. The the, uh, the, the blinds have come down, and someone has told you that they're in control. So it, it, it's an interesting start. Oh, and do we have a bit of a, a bit of flash of Rose coming up? I think we do. I'm not quite well, sure. Well, no, it's that's, now. that's, that's not later. till later. Okay, okay. But what we've seen just there, I think, is another hallmark of an RTD script that we have pop culture references. I mean, yes. we've seen a clip of Blondie there. Um, we, we've seen a couple of old, I assume, Warner or um, Walt Disney black and white um, cartoons going. Mm-hmm. Um, that's And we're just seeing there now Betty Boo <laughs> dancing away across screen. Yeah, yeah. So that's very very much a hallmark of an RTD script. I think so. And even the kind of ambience. I mean, you look at this scene. This scene is a parody of... Um, the pre-flight sequence, or the safety, um, sorry, not this particular one, the one before it, but it, it, it's basically a parody of the experience 
of the 20th and 21st century air traveller and it, all of the bad mm. bits about it put in a very bad light. So that, in a way, is a culture reference, if not necessarily a pop culture reference. It's, it's tying it mm. to the time in which the episode is being transmitted. Mm. Now, let, let me throw something out here, which I think is one of the major parts of this story, and, and I think for me is probably one of the more controversial things I'll say during this commentary, just to flag it there. Um, <laughs> the the characterization of the Doctor in the story, now I know it was RTD's intent to show the David Tennant Doctor as someone who really isn't in control, that we're, we're seeing him say the same sort of things he says in every other adventure we've seen for the past two and a half years. Um, but in this story, it just doesn't work. Now, I think even it goes a step further that um, that the Doctor is shown to be a little bit of a, a weird person, almost a, almost a buffoon, mm-hmm. that he's seen as a comedy character in this, someone not to be taken seriously. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm, I'm going to extend this a little bit further and say, while I enjoy the David Tennant characterization of the Tenth Doctor, I've never felt he's a Doctor that's been able to command a presence. He's never been able to... Um, walk into a room and make it his own. Mm. Not like the Tom Baker Doctor, not like the Patrick Troughton Doctor, certainly not like the John Pertwee Doctor. Mm. Um, and for for me, Midnight was finally a vindication, you know, all these years into his reign, that here's a Doctor who no one seems to take seriously. <laughs> and it seems to be something RTD was finally picking up on. Well, perhaps what we've got here is that the, the character of the Doctor is coming of age. Um, in as much as, all right, in the universe that contains John Pertwee and Tom Baker, you tend to look around for an authority figure. These days, in this part, in this particular part of the century, if someone started acting like the Doctor, you take a step back and just look at them. Well, who are you? What you know? Why should I accept your authority? Because in those previous days, we're we're very very sure of where authority was and what it looked like, and that was what John Pertwee looked like, which is why I have an issue with his Doctor now. Um, James, you might remember going across to. Um, a convention together, and there was somebody being the tenth Doctor, and he just finds himself standing back and looking at him. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. It's like in, in, in a real situation where there's danger, if someone started behaving like the tenth Doctor, you'd be like, "Excuse me, what on earth are you no, doing?" I, I, it, it, it's a very weird experience for you and us being at a convention, watching someone else being a character who we both know doesn't really exist. I mean, in, in, and that has a degree of fascination in it in itself. I mm, think, mm. and it's not purely the character of the Doctor, but. Uh, it's it's the actual willingness of an individual to pass off the tenth Doctor so unbelievably well. Oh God, yeah, he was, <laughs> um, he was... which was a bit freaky, quite frankly. Mm. But um, it's it, yes, I do agree with you. I, th- I think the character of the tenth Doctor is a bit odd. But then again, the Doctor is supposed to be a bit odd. Um, he's positively normal compared to Matt Smith's portrayal. Mm. Um, what, what I find interesting is what Trev was mentioning earlier as to whether or not this is one particular Doctor who um, isn't taken seriously because people said that of the Fifth Doctor uh, as well mm. and clearly Tennant's got some connection um, himself with the Fifth Doctor mm. and you know, Time Crash I think was, was an acknowledgement of that between him and Stephen Moffat. But um, I'm I'm not entirely certain the Tenth Doctor is always overlooked. I think he is in this story very, very clearly, and it takes him by surprise. And the reason why it takes him by surprise is because it's not par for the course. People do normally listen to the Doctor. People normally do listen to David Tennant's interpretation of the Doctor. It's just in this particular scenario, for whatever reason, 
Yeah. They gang up on him as opposed to listen to him. Do you know? It, and I think well, that's an interesting I, premise. I I think I've got a reason for that, and it only came to light when I rewatched the Confidential for this episode the other day. Um, I, I can't remember who it was, but he made a fascinating comment that the Doctor is companionless, yeah. and then went through a ten-minute bit during the Confidential about you know other stories in the Doctor Who that are where the Doctor is companionless, and they made the comment about Deadly Assassin. Um, that it's fascinating that we're we're talking about the Doctor being out of control and not being treated seriously, and it's the only story. Well, uh, I mean, apart from other slightly companionless stories, yeah. that the Doctor doesn't have someone by his side as a buffer, and it's interesting that this story is mm. that one that 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 we're looking at the Doctor that is so out of control. No one takes him seriously. I mean. The the main thing for me is that scene later where he is asked what is his real name, and he comes up with that John Smith moniker, and everyone just laughs at him. Yeah, but it's it's interesting. Yeah, it's 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 just it's it's just so strange that any other story, it would be treated as you know sort of par for the course, but in Midnight, it's just another nail in the uh, yeah. Tenth Doctor's coffin. Maybe that's a premise or the blueprint, if you like, for the Gap Year specials. And perhaps this was considered such a success and they were so um, well received or the audience received this episode so well in terms of seeing a Doctor's vulnerable side that they decided to take away that staple of a companion for three or four stories you know, in, in a row um, and explore the character of the Doctor in a way that they haven't done since the classic series. I wonder whether now, that was the case. Let, let me ask something here. We're in the cockpit here with, with the driver and the technician and the Doctor. There's a light flashing in the distance, which they're seeing through their view screen. Is that meant to symbolise the alien that 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 the mechanic can see? I think that's, that the, I think that's the sun. I think that's the sun sparkling off something. Because I'm 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 wondering in this marvelous um, scape of this planet we can see whether you're actually meant to notice that you can <laughs> see a glimmer of an alien appearing, or whether it's all subterfuge. That's a good point. Good point. I have to admit, the thing that I've noticed more than that, and this is not to move away from your point, Trevor, is is, is the 24 logo in the background in the cockpit. Did either of you two see that? There was no. A num- there's a number. We can't rewind it, unfortunately. <laughs> um, stuff with live commentaries. You have to watch them first time, I guess. But I've just noticed it a few times. It's the, it's the, um, the numerals 24 in exactly the same font um, and presentation as the series 24 that's nice oh really yeah Yeah, precisely i mean interesting i don't think it's got any resemblance because it's not in real time it's not another 42 but um yeah just just notice that (laughs) Um, i've got a slightly more general point we're talking about the doctor not being taken seriously and we've got it happening here now as well um that this is the, the stewardess is meant to be in control and she really clearly isn't and then similarly you've got the passengers begin to eat each other. The Doctor stands up. He gets a little bit of attention, but that's going to be eroded very, very shortly. It, it's, it's interesting. Mm. You know, the, the author- what we see here is that the authority figures really crumble under continual buffeting from people who are trying to eat each other. Yeah. There's it, a little bit of Lord of the Flies, perhaps. Yes, exactly you that. Know, the, the vying mm. for, um, uh, for attention and a voice and seeing how quickly authority and civilization just... Um, crumbles under pressure exactly so exactly so i i i think what makes this story so believable and so real i mean i'm really a fan of midnight and i suppose that might come as a surprise to some people but because 
I, I suppose when people watch Midnight, that they accentuate the fact that the Doctor's out of control and therefore people think, oh, he doesn't like that story. Mm. But Midnight really, really works well. It's, it's a fantastically claustrophobic, chilling story. And, and, and I think one of the fantastic things that works about it is the way the balance of power shifts mm. within the cabin all during the story, mm. that it passes to different characters all during the 50 minutes or so. Mm. I mean, at the beginning, we have the David Troughton character in control. He's the person who's been on this voyage, you know, 14 times before. He even calls it an expedition, and he knows all about it. Then it transfers to the Doctor, back to the stewardess, back to that annoying wife, and then finally to the um, uh, uh, character of Skye, played so incredibly by Leslie Sharp. I mean, I I didn't really think she had it in her. She's She's got a fabulous face, hasn't she? I, oh. I, I've not been impressed by Leslie Sharp. I have to say, everyone was saying how wonderful she was in this story. Russell T. Davies made a big um, song and dance about writing the part uh, specifically for Leslie Sharp. And I saw her um, alongside Christopher Eccleston for the first time in another Russell T. Davies scripted story called Second Coming. And I've got to say, I wasn't particularly impressed with her then either. So perhaps you can explain, what is it about her that you think is so good in this particular role she's playing. I don't know. I mean, I mean, I, I, I think for me, I mean, l- let's be honest. She, she isn't the most beautiful woman in the world. She mm. is one, I suppose, you'd, you'd call ornery. Wow. And, what? Uh, she's very distinctive. She's got a gorgeous She's face. distinctive, mm. but she's distinctive, but she's ordinary, but she's not beautiful. Mm. She is just, she's just a passenger on this trip that suddenly panics as, as part of the crew, then suddenly becomes a very pivotal part of the story and I, I i think if she'd been like a really beautiful woman you know well well known to anyone watching the show her character wouldn't have worked as well mm. yeah i i'm still not convinced that she's a she's she's any better than anyone else would have been in this particular part um you know why why russell t davis decided to write uh, Leslie Sharp specifically is still still beyond me a little, but uh, I think she does a very. I think, I think she. I think she does a great line in Haunted, um, particularly later on when she's clearly possessed. Um, but you know, we've just missed something quite important with the hostess again being challenged. Like you're, you're supposed to tell us what to do, and she doesn't know what to do. Oh, here yeah, we are. Well, well, no, we we've um, certainly moved beyond the point where her training oh. has told her what to do. Um, yeah. You know, you, you know, we have this weird in inverted commas, creature banging on the outside of the hull. Uh, I think we've certainly passed beyond her uh, induction video training somehow, and, <laughs> and she's just as lost as the, uh, as, as the, uh, as the uh, ordinary passengers are. I think I would love that, though, on an induction video. That would be good. Should we be attacked during the course of our journey <laughs> by a large unknown monster, please react in the following way. <laughs> that would be good. Listen to the Time Lord. <laughs> Yes, if only they'd done that. I mean, I, I think this episode now there's is, um, your rose. There's your rose no. shot right there. Uh, yes. There now that, that 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 was one of the parts of the season, wasn't it? That uh, Rose Tyler was trying to get in touch with the Doctor from another universe, mm. and you know we're we're at the business end of the season now, I suppose, where all this starts happening because Rose physically appears in the next story, turn left, and then leads into the rest of the season. Oh, yeah. this is why we've got Leslie Sharp. This is why. Beautiful. You think so? Oh, yeah. 
I think the use of the torches here is excellent. And uh, if, if you look at the way they've, they've managed to make certain that they don't glare out the entire uh, shot there, and they just add to the atmosphere and the, uh, the tension that the script is trying to deliver. I think that's great. Brilliant, brilliant, brilliant. And the cockpit's gone. Brilliant. <laughs> and the way they achieved that was with a rather bright light. Mm. <laughs> it's as simple as Ooh, that. Funnily so, enough, yes. Yeah, yes. But, you know, all, all of the best effects are done in a very, very cheap way. But, but absolute proof. <laughs> exactly. I mean, uh, sorry, sorry, Trev, please. No, I was just going to say David Troughton makes specific mention of that, and and I think it's quite poignant that he makes mention of it during the confidential. Um, that during classic Doctor Who, they didn't have access to all this newfangled technology. They had to do it the old-fashioned way, you know, with real effects with real people banging on the outside of the hole to mm-hmm. um, give the actors their prompts. Mm-hmm. And um, it, it, it's one thing that's really shown here that this story is so basic. It's down to the actors. Uh, I mean, we, we, we have a very basic claustrophobic set, mm-hmm. but really we're down to this handful of actors to provide, you know, the emotional gravitas for the story. Mm. Yeah, and I, I think that's um, it, it, it's worthwhile mentioning the supporting cast here because you've got quite a few relatively well-known actors. That young boy, didn't I see him in Merlin fairly recently? <laughs> yeah. Well, yes. Uh, Colin, yes, yes, that's right. Colin, I couldn't remember the character's name. Uh, well, it, that's, it, that's, that's, that's the actor's name, James. Colin Morgan. Well, no, I thought Merlin was his real name. <laughs> Obviously, he sucked you into the part too well. Oh well, he's, he's a very good actor. I have to say, I think he's considerably better in uh, in this episode of Doctor Who than he is in Merlin in general. But that might be my <laughs> um, natural bias for Doctor Who, anyway. But um, the, the other actors, certainly, there's at least one former EastEnders or possibly current EastEnders character. Um, and again, it's Carol Jackson. I don't know what the actress's name. Now, we sh- we should just pay a bit of attention to the way. Leslie Sharp turns round here because I do think this is almost oh. an, an animal as opposed to a human anymore. Yeah, it's. I mean, it's the, a bit the, the, <laughs> the the unnamed alien creature has finally entered the uh, the bus, I suppose you can call it, and you know we're really getting into the real meaty part of the episode where um, you know the Doctor's authority is questioned, mm-hmm. and it it's an incredibly atmospheric story from this point on and it's it's really really interesting because it follows the structure of Doctor's story in terms of um you know we have an alien threat and it has to be dealt with but you know i suppose jumping forward to the end of the story where we have all the characters sitting in the bus just exhausted from their experience and not really being able to say anything to each other yeah i mean especially to the doctor it's just so unlike any other Doctor Who story where normally with the end of a Doctor Who story you sort of stand outside the TARDIS and go, oh, that was wonderful, you know, I've, I've helped you, your, you know, your race or your people or whatever. But this story is so different that everyone's just so shell-shocked by their experience. Yeah, Do you know- yeah. No, I know what you mean, and I know it's not a, in direct response to what you were saying, but it's, it's got a similar kind of feel to the um, Troughton story, uh, Troughton, the Hartnell story, um, Edge of Destruction or Inside a Spaceship, I can't remember which one that's the, uh, it is now. Uh, that's both the, Edge both of Destruction, t- yes, definitely. Both titles are correct, both titles are correct. Oh, it's the same story, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. Oh, good, yeah. Whereas a TARDIS-focused... 
um, episode and all of the regular cast turn on each other. And that that's resonant. And I know it's not, as I said, it's not the point you were making explicitly, Trev, because uh, you were talking about the end of the episode as opposed to the actual episode in its entirety. But I wonder whether that was any kind of inspiration from RTD as well, whether he thought, well, let's have a really claustrophobic story where, you know, number of characters put them in a close ex- environment and turn them against each other because those kind of scripts for a drama writer I think write themselves and an RTD yeah. did say that he did this for a replacement script because Midnight was never actually planned to be in uh, in series four he did it in a space of what two or three days something along those lines do you know something like that I mean I, I, I think when you're presented with the premise that you've got to have a story where it's just the doctor and you've only got the companion, I suppose, as a framing at the beginning and end, that it almost gives you the idea to call it or or to produce a bottle episode like we have here with Midnight, that we have the Doctor with a cast of characters on one set. I mean, this could be done for the stage. It really could, and it would be incredibly atmospheric on the stage because it would be so easy to do. Do you know what I think's going on here? I, it, I'm just picking up from watching it now. Is this, I think this is a story about the difference between uh, intent and the signals that we receive. Because okay, this, you've got you've got this thing that's turned up inside the shuttle, and it's picking up that language is how people communicate and how they control each other. And amazingly, look, you know in your own mind that what you think and what you express are supposed to be the same thing, but the moment someone <laughs> starts matching you. There's a real problem. It's like, my God, do, mm. do you understand? My God, do you really know what I intend? That's a real threat to people. Yeah. Well, I um, think it's even beyond that too. That when when we're having the authority of the Doctor there, oh. and like I said at the beginning, he's saying the same sort of things he would say in every other adventure. Mm-hmm. But as soon as you've, but as soon as you've got a character like Sky sitting there repeating everything he's saying, it's almost like he's mocking him. Well, it's almost like he's saying, "Don't trust this guy." He's no good. Um, There's that. Although the all all other words are exactly the same as any other adventure we'll see during the entire tenant era. Well, this is the thing, but but I think my my point is that what you what you speak, what you what we speak, what we express is secondary to what we think. It's only a very small part of what we think. But to have someone matching you is to suggest that they are actually in that thought process with you, which. If, if, if that's a life partner, if that's something benevolent, that's fantastic. But when it's something invasive, that's actually tremendously frightening. Does that make sense? Yeah, complete in other sense. And I think you're, mm. I think you're very, very right. And I, I think the way they interpret that on stage, on stage, see, I'm thinking of this as a production <laughs> as opposed to a TV thing. Um, but it is almost on stage because you've got that close camera shot that I do think Alice Troughton does brilliantly. You look at the number of different shots within this episode. Even just now, this is a random point, you take a look to see how long the camera stays on one character. You try and count past about five mm. and it changes. Yeah. You know, and yeah. it changed. Typical, I just chose one and it didn't. But there you <laughs> are. But uh, it goes very quickly and that is an incredible way to direct. Um, and you go back just a few minutes ago when David Tennant was looking directly opposite Leslie Sharp. Leslie Sharp had to learn every single one of David Tennant's lines as well mm-hmm. and then speak them at the same time. Yep, 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 yep. Now, well, I'm, learn I'm, everyone's I'm sh- lines because there's, there's certain points in the story where she is repeating every single character's lines. So she's not only learning David Tennant's, she's learning 
all the other secondary characters in the story. Yeah, it, yeah, it's, up, up it's from a point onwards, yes, no, you're, you're quite right. And I don't necessarily think learning lines is difficult for an actor, so I don't think <laughs> it's the quantity of lines that makes it hard. What I do think is um, impressive is the way that she portrays them and says them in a convincing way. You know, does, does that make yes, sense? Yes, you know, yes. it's it's rather it than just... It does, it does, because, Ooh. I mean, you, you have a character that Leslie's playing that she can't be spontaneous. She can't be interpretive. Mm. She is pretty much given a role where she has to mimic every single person, but she has to give it that inflection or, or certain resonance mm. that makes it her own line as well while still mimicking everyone else that's on that particular scene. Mm. No, I agree. Oh. Interesting. And it, do, you, do either of you remember what the number of this particular bus or plane or whatever it is is on the outside? It's got like a normal bus number. Oh, I don't know. Is it 50? Well, it's not that hard. 50. Yeah, well done. <laughs> I was wondering whether or not you paid attention. And of course, that's because it's uh, the 50th episode since Doctor Who returned in 2005. And also the reason as to why we're doing a commentary on it, as it's our 50th celebrations or 50th podcast celebrations. Eight. I'm wondering whether, whether if they knew this was going to be the 50th story, whether it would have been or not. Whether it's just a... Just, no, I mean, it, it, it just seems strange that if you knew that the 50th story, would, like we have with our own podcast, that you'd have something special planned for it. Oh, Not that this episode you? isn't good, but you, you think wouldn't. if the 50th one, that you would plan something amazing. That is special. I don't know. I mean, it, well, it's not really. I mean, you think, what's the 50th episode of um, Spooks? What's the 50th episode of any other series? Nobody knows. I, I think what they've done is that they've acknowledged the fact that it is the 50th episode by calling it the Crusader 50. And... I think maybe there are a few other references as well to the word 50. You see it on parts of the um, cabin every now and again. There's a button up the front. The door that you push has got 50 written on it as well. And, and I think that's probably about it, to be honest with you. Um, if I, I think a certain number of a TV programme isn't a major milestone. Sorry, so are you a Doctor Who fan? Yeah, I'm, I'm talking about the casual viewer, not me as a fan, of course. <laughs> but uh, all right, th think of put it into context, guys. Think of other programs that you watch and you've seen, you know, a series after series. You know, what's the fiftieth episode of Buffy or Battlestar Galactica or something? Yeah, but know, this that's... is Doctor Who, James. <laughs> yeah. Come on, we're we're on a different playing field. This is Doctor Who. I thought you were going to say on a different planet then, and I was just about to agree with you. <laughs> <laughs> But yes, it's amazing how quickly yes. this stuff breaks down, isn't it? I mean, I, I like the idea. Well, I don't like the idea. It frightens me that any civilization is only three meals away from revolution. <laughs> mm. Yeah, it's interesting. It, it, it's an interesting examination of, of culture and society. And I think um, in a society where we're supposed to be incredibly civil and nice to each other and um, tolerant, etc., it's it is an interesting social experiment. I think to. Th to say, well, how far can we push this? And in a way, it's what Big Brother does. And I, I can't believe I'm speaking about Big Brother on a Doctor Who podcast, but it puts people in the same kind of environment as we see the characters of Midnight in and tries to force conflict. It, it, it sees someone try to assert themselves as the leader. Ooh. It sees others trying to assert themselves as Sorry, it's, followers. It's, it's, they've just really... Just, they're trying to chuck him out of the shuttle. Oh, dear! I'm sorry. <laughs> sorry. Sorry. I'm sorry. I shouldn't have interrupted. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. 
no, not at no, all. I mean, I'd vote to list anyway. <laughs> I, I, I suppose what I was going to ask was, I mean, going back to what we talked about at the beginning, what makes the Doctor not the Doctor in this story? What makes everyone not believe him? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. No, no I, I suppose where I'm coming from that every Doctor Who story has a certain level of stress in it, that we have characters up against certain conflicts or problems or, or, or alien invasions. What makes this story to, so different apart from RTD's intent that makes everyone not believe that the Doctor is the Doctor? I think it, I think I, it's because the character has just grown up a little bit. If I think very briefly about all the characters from my childhood that have returned recently, James Bond, Batman, the A-Team, they, they're back. They are who they always were, but they're just slightly darker, slightly more world-weary, and, just, and like this... The, you know they've got no real. It, they they are the same people, the same characters, but they're just a little bit more chilled and a little bit more world weary. And here you've got the audience actually pulling it out of the character. Why should we? Why should we actually trust you? And the best you can come back with is because I'm a character. It's like and the audience are doing what audiences these days do. I mean you've been to Outpost Gallifrey or Gallifrey Base, and and they are in there with the knives. The character of the Doctor is in the shuttle being hacked to pieces, and it's just down to the strength of the character that he actually stands up at the very end of it. So I, I think what we've got is a very real exploration of what of what Russell T Davies's version of Doctor Who was going through at the time that this was being made. Interesting. I mean, for, yeah, for, that, for, 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 for fear of coming up with a cliche, mm-hmm. how much can we lay at the grounds of, I suppose, 9-11? I'm not sure about that. Yeah, I mean, I mean it's, it's interesting that so much tele-fantasy content, I mean, you, you quoted Batman, for example, mm. How much of that sort of content is the dark, conflicted character? I mean, certainly before 9-11, we didn't have a Batman that was reviled and hated by the police force and chased by them. I mean, certainly before 9-11, we didn't have a doctor in this story that um, was not trusted. Uh, I see what you're saying. Um, uh, what, what, what... How, how, I mean, I know nine eleven is a big world changer, but can can we sort of try and do a little bit of that towards midnight? I think to support what you're saying, that when there are global trauma, then the arts in the world change to reflect that. If you look at the if you look at the, the nature of the arts before the First World War, which is probably one of the first global trauma um, that that individuals had the opportunity to have an opinion about, if you see what I mean. Because um, it's the first industrial war, the first media war, if you like, or pro- the first of the media wars. Um, then art and self-perception in the world changes distinctly after that. So perhaps with things like 9-11, where something horrific is unfolding in, is unfolding in front of you, then perhaps things like that do scar uh, the human psyche. But that opens up a whole... Uh, a whole other question about uh, what you know, what, what you know, what is the nature of human community, and how do we regard ourselves, and how do we express that through the arts? But it's a good, it's a good no, point. I, it is. I'm, I'm going to completely contend it and say I think it's got absolutely nothing to do with it whatsoever. Um, I, I, I really don't. I don't think in any other way in which those kind of events impact other people's outlook on life. Um, and I, and I think possibly people may question their actions or may question other people's actions, but whether or not that would actually influence a writer who is so steeped in the history of a particular show in order to write a story where the doctor isn't in charge, I think that's a huge, huge leap to make. Um, I think it's just RTD playing with a full 
paint box. Mm. You know, it, it, there was you look at earlier on in this particular uh, series, you've got partners in crime. Um, you can even include uh, Voyager the Damned in this season, perhaps. Two very, very light episodes, really. I mean, dark stories, perhaps, but quite light episodes. Um, Midnight is just the extreme of that. And I think ITD actually said at the time, Midnight was a response to people saying he's treating very serious subjects in a very light way in the past. Yeah. So, And certainly in the writer's tale, that that's borne out again. Yeah. Um, Voyager the Dam was light, it was jocular, it was, it was silly in places. Yeah. So Midnight was his attempt to defuse the critics. I, I don't think mm. world events or um, massive changes in the way that people view life has anything to do with it. Um, it and if it has, I think it would be a very, very small input into LTD's oh. um, thought process. You know, okay. I- well, let, 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 let me ask another question to, to foster debate. Um, I've been very impressed up to this point, and we really haven't talked about, I suppose, scene-specific stuff. Oh. Because we're up... up <laughs> We're we're up at a point in the story where the uh, the character of Sky is mimicking David Tennant exactly, not only following what he's saying but mimicking what he's saying. Um, so the the story is slowly ramping up in intensity, minute by minute by minute. Yeah. Now that's not something I really associate with RTD that much. Um, how much can we credit RTD with this, and how much can we credit? Alice Troughton, the director, with this, both, absolutely both, yeah. absolutely both. Plus, plus, you've got to have the actors inside there as well. And you know, this is so creepy. Oh, it's fantastic. This is this mm. this is why you've got Leslie Sharp doing this because look at her. It's just oh, it's like this this ecstatic. I'm in control now. I've worked out what it is. And like I say, it's the stuff that you can't see that you know is happening. That is that is the scary part of it. Um, I, I want to come back to this idea about this is uh, an abstract for Doctor Who being on trial because all right fine the fans start picking up start picking holes in the doctor and then the and then the fan becomes the doctor how creepy is that it's one well, you know I'll, I'll clear, maybe i'm just <laughs> 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 I, that's a, i've never ever considered it that way before but that is quite creepy mm, 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 mm. <laughs> <laughs> Puts cosplay for me in a whole different way. <laughs> we were at the we were at the same convention. You know what I thought. Anyway, moving on. I do know exactly what you mean. Yes. <laughs> but but, no, but you know what? Watching this and having that in mind, it's uh, yeah, it's it's certainly expanding the boundaries of it a little bit. Which again is something you can only do if you limit the amount of change going on. You can focus on the characters. Wonderful. But but certainly to answer your question um, uh, from my point of view, Trev, then I, I think it is both. But I think there are three really important things to a successful script, everyone will say. It's, it's a direction, because you can have a brilliant script, poorly directed, and it loses a lot. Um, and you can have um, the writing itself, that's still obviously very, very important. And it's the interpretation from the actors. And this is one thing that is actually perfect on all three. The blend of those three uh, variables is absolutely spot on. Um, I, I still don't think that Leslie Sharp plays this any better than any other actress who was given the same kind of material and is directed in the same way. I don't think she's anything special. But because of that blend of those variables, I think this story is very, very memorable. Uh, I do love the direction. The direction here has slowed down a lot more and it's gradually just speeding up again at the moment. But Alice Troughton uses the speed that she cuts these scenes to ramp up tension, to wind it down again, and it's just it's just great stuff to watch. Yeah, exactly, Jane. I, I think one of the beauties about this story is the way it's almost analogue in the way it speeds up, slows down, speeds up, slow down, that you really can't predict 
where it's going to start ramping up again. And I think one of the fantastic things about this is the way Leslie Sharp commands the room that I think the way Alice Troughton's directing it is David Tennant's supposed to be the focus of the room, but uh, <laughs> just, uh, it, it's, it's interesting the, the, the different dynamic between actor intent and, you, you, you know, the way the actors deliver their performance yeah. and what the director perhaps has in mind that, Perhaps they're sort of thinking, well, okay, the Doctor's the main focus of this story. He should be the one that gets the lion's share of the, 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 the time. But Leslie Sharp, I mean, we've just seen a fantastic close-up of her there. She is triumphant. She knows she's winning. She's got the entire passenger complement of this story against the Doctor, slowly turning against the main character of the story. I mean, it's it's an incredibly pivotal moment of the story where... We're we're very close to the point where the passengers are quite happy to throw him out the airlock. You know, what's it? Um, I, I think this is about separation, perception, and control because you can see the you know the character of the Doctor is fighting really, really hard there, and the real fear is that he's not in control. He's not in control anymore. But mm. you've got this alien that like it thinks it's a toy. Oh, you people can't see the difference between voice and intent. Oh, okay, I'll work with that then. And you know, it, it's it's wonderful, absolutely wonderful. Hasn't he got an Anthony Ainley beard? This chap? he has a bit. Yeah. <laughs> Old Biff, yes, yes. <laughs> Biff. That's the is, character is that... name, unfortunately. You're yes, Biff. Biff. The only Biff other character is... name I've ever heard of is from Back to the Future. Biff Tanner. Yeah, well, he's he's the uh, the uh, father. Biff. Yes. Ah. Rather unfortunate, but yeah. anyway. But um, yeah, it it's but. This scene really, for me, shows the Doctor's still fighting. He's still there in the game, even yeah. though he's a very passive character com- compared to the other characters in this scene, that he's still finding a way for you know, the Doctor to win, that he's inserting that Montaubene and Alonzi stuff into it and finally making, I suppose, the least important character in this entire story realise what is really happening. Uh-huh. And we're seeing this now on screen that the stewardess has dragged Sky to the airlock and, you know, resolved the story for us. Yeah. I, I know what you mean. Now, hmm, apart from a dramatic ending, did the stewardess really need to go out with the character there with uh, of Sky. Well, one, because the one way she's wonders pushed it whether to the door, it looks like she could have just opened it and pushed it for the door and closed it again. Well, one one wonders whether one wonders whether the actual alien creature would have been killed anyway, considering that's where it came from to begin with. Well, so, um, well, maybe it's not been killed, but perhaps it's lost its influence because it's no longer in close proximity to the characters. I, I just think that was just another token death that RTD threw in to try and you know. Make you feel, oh, you know, there was a sacrifice uh, here. I, I, I get the um, feeling uh, that at the end of it, just looking at it as we're watching it now, that the person who was meant to be in control of that situation ultimately took responsibility for it and resolved it. Yeah. Perhaps that I, was the... I, yeah. yeah. I totally agree. I mean, we, we have a very minor character as far as the story is concerned. Someone who's involved for, I suppose, the administrative <clears throat> side of the, uh, the uh, bus cool. finally... Yeah, giving us a solution for the story. Yeah, no, I I, it, I agree with it, the it's point. A perfect way uh, but to do what it. I would what I would have thought would have been better is if they hadn't actually had a shot that looked like they'd actually got lined up 
next to each other, facing each mm. other, in order to jump out together. Mm. <laughs> Which, of course, is what they did to achieve the shot. But this is the shot you were talking about earlier on, Trev, where everybody's just kind of, mm. you know, all the energy, all the tension has been drains from yeah, the sets. It's, it's, um, it's an incredible counterpoint to the uh, a scene at the beginning where they're first on the bus and the, the, the doctor popped his head up and goes, well, we need to start talking to each other. And oh, you know? we're at, 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 at the end of the story now and no one can talk to anyone. They're sort of, I, I suppose, all really embarrassed by their actions. Well, there's this lovely thing where you've got the doctor just saying, what was her name? And no one knows, but she was the hero. And then, but, exactly, but then we're, exactly. And then we're back on the doctor. Yeah. What's his name? No one knows, but he's the hero. And that embarrassment, I think, even continues <clears> on to <throat> this scene here with Donna, that that we have not a doctor, I suppose, not only shell-shocked and weary from his experience, but embarrassed by his own actions. Because, we, we you know, we have Donna doing the Molto Bene thing very soon, and he's going, you know, don't. Don't do that. And it, it's not that he's weary, he's just... I suppose embarrassed by the whole situation. Well, it's one of those things. Like, does he ever get a day off? Does he ever get a day off? Yeah, <laughs> he's the doctor. He's the doctor. He's not meant to get a day off. Yeah, I suppose that thing. Like all characters, there's no rest for the wicked. <laughs> well, perhaps. Well, I think it would be quite interesting following the doctor. Actually, when he doesn't have an adventure to solve, that would be quite a good story in its own right. <laughs> Where there wasn't a particular crisis or. Uh monster to be defeated let's just see how the doctor genuinely relaxes i want to see how long it takes before he does catch a gumball joke <laughs> well i think the closest we've come is during the william hartnell era or the uh, or the uh, peter davison era where we've had a such a large crew that then that they've been able to spend the time to sit around and do nothing like they did during the romans or during yes. certain davison stories where they've obviously spent time between stories relaxing yeah, and that's a, that's a brilliant part of the Romans, just realizing mm. that that's precisely what they're what they're doing. So, but what um, we're seeing here, I suppose, is the uh, next time on Doctor Who, where uh, Donna spends most of the story doing the action, and uh, David Tennant gets a holiday. Yeah, indeed. Oh, do you know I miss that old time tunnel? I really do. Mm. Smoke free. <laughs> kind of yellow and red. It's got a Tom Baker kind of. Um, Resonant, resonating feel mm. to it. So, yeah. That's all I'd love. That's a Tom Baker. Well, that, <laughs> yes. Well, that's midnight. And uh, thank you for joining us. And we will uh, see you all for our next commentary, I suppose. Bye for Take now. it easy.